Day 4 of Totus Tuus's Novena to Mary Immaculate Star of Hope With quotes from Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical letter Spe Salvi On Christian Hope How could the idea have developed that Jesus' message is narrowly individualistic and aimed only at each person singly? How did we arrive at this interpretation of the salvation of the soul as a flight from responsibility for the whole? And how did we come to conceive the Christian project as a selfish search for salvation which rejects the idea of serving others? In order to find an answer to this, you must take a look at the foundations of the modern age. These appear with particular clarity in the thought of Francis Bacon that a new era emerged through the discovery of America and the new technical achievements that had made this development possible is undeniable. But what is the basis of this new era? It is the new correlation of experiment and method that enables man to arrive at an interpretation of nature in conformity with its laws and thus finally to achieve the triumph of art over nature. The novelty, according to Bacon's vision, lies in a new correlation between science and praxis. This is also given a theological application. The new correlation between science and praxis would mean that the dominion over creation, given to man by God and lost through original sin, would be re-established. Anyone who reads and reflects on these statements attentively will recognize that a disturbing step has been taken. Up to that time, the recovery of what man had lost through the expulsion from paradise was expected from faith in Jesus Christ. Herein lay redemption. Now this redemption, the restoration of the lost paradise, is no longer expected from faith, but from the newly discovered link between science and praxis. It is not that faith is simply denied. Rather, it is displaced onto another level, that of purely private and otherworldly affairs. And at the same time, it becomes somehow irrelevant for the world. This programmatic vision has determined the trajectory of modern times, and it also shapes the present-day crisis of faith, which is essentially a crisis of Christian hope. Thus, hope, too, in Bacon, acquires a new form. Now it is called faith in progress. For Bacon, it is clear that the recent spate of discoveries and inventions is just the beginning. Through the interplay of science and praxis, totally new discoveries will follow. A totally new world order will emerge. The kingdom of man. He even put forward a vision of foreseeable inventions, including the aeroplane and the submarine. As the ideology of progress developed further, joy at visible advances in human potential remained a continuing confirmation of faith in progress as such. At the same time, two categories become increasingly central to the idea of progress, reason and freedom. 
progress is primarily associated with a growing dominion of reason. And this reason is obviously considered to be a force of good and a force for good. Progress is the overcoming of all forms of dependency. It is progress towards perfect freedom. Likewise, freedom is seen purely as a promise in which man becomes more and more fully himself. In both concepts, freedom and reason, there is a political aspect. The kingdom of reason, in fact, is expected as the new condition of the human race once it has attained total freedom. The political conditions of such a kingdom of reason and freedom, however, appear at first sight somewhat ill-defined. Reason and freedom seem to guarantee by themselves, by virtue of their intrinsic goodness, a new and perfect human community. The two key concepts of reason and freedom, however, were tacitly interpreted as being in conflict with the shackles of faith and of the Church, as well as those of the political structures of the period. Both concepts, therefore, contain a revolutionary potential of enormous explosive force. We must look briefly at the two essential stages in the political realization of this hope, because they are of great importance for the development of Christian hope, for a proper understanding of it, and of the reasons for its persistence. First, there is the French Revolution, an attempt to establish the rule of reason and freedom as a political reality. To begin with, the Europe of the Enlightenment looked on with fascination at these events, but then, as they developed, had cause to reflect anew on reason and freedom. A good illustration of these two phases in the reception of events in France is found in two essays by Immanuel Kant, in which he reflects on what had taken place. In 1792 he wrote, The victory of the good over the evil principle, and the founding of a kingdom of God on earth. In this text he says the following, the gradual transition of ecclesiastical faith to the exclusive sovereignty of pure religious faith is the coming of the kingdom of God. He also tells us that revolutions can accelerate this transition from ecclesiastical faith to rational faith. The kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus receives a new definition here and takes on a new mode of presence. A new imminent expectation, so to speak, comes into existence. The kingdom of God arrives where ecclesiastical faith is vanquished and superseded by religious faith, that is to say, by simple rational faith. In 1795, in the text, The End of All Things, a changed image appears. Now Kant considers the possibility that as well as the natural end of all things, there may be another that is unnatural, a perverse end. He writes in this connection, if Christianity should one day cease to be worthy of love, then the prevailing mode in human thought would be rejection and opposition to it, and the Antichrist would begin his, albeit short, regime, presumably based on fear and self-interest. But then, because Christianity, though destined to be the world religion, would not in fact be favoured by destiny to become so, then, in a moral respect, this could lead to the perverted end of all things. 
The 19th century held fast to its faith and progress as the new form of human hope, and it continued to consider reason and freedom as the guiding stars to be followed along the path of hope. Nevertheless, the increasingly rapid advance of technical development and the industrialization connected with it soon gave rise to an entirely new social situation. There emerged a class of industrial workers and the so-called industrial proletariat, whose dreadful living conditions Friedrich Engels described alarmingly in 1845. For his readers, the conclusion is clear. This cannot continue. A change is necessary. Yet the change would shake up and overturn the entire structure of bourgeois society. After the bourgeois revolution in 1789, the time had come for a new proletarian revolution. Progress could not simply continue in small, linear steps. A revolutionary leap was needed. Karl Marx took up the rallying cry and applied his incisive language and intellect to the task of launching this major new and, as he thought, definitive step in history towards salvation, towards what Cantor described as the kingdom of God. Once the truth of the hereafter had been rejected, it would then be a question of establishing the truth of the here and now. The critique of heaven is transformed into the critique of earth, the critique of theology into the critique of politics. Progress towards the better, towards the definitively good world, no longer comes simply from science, but from politics. From a scientifically conceived politics, that recognizes the structure of history and society, and thus points out the road towards revolution, towards all-encompassing change. With great precision, albeit with a certain one-sided bias, Marx described the situation of his time, and with great analytical skill, he spelled out the paths leading to revolution, and not only theoretically. By means of the Communist Party that came into being from the Communist Manifesto of 1848, he set it in motion. His promise, owing to the acuteness of his analysis and his clear indication of the means for radical change, was, and still remains, an endless source of fascination. Real revolution followed, in the most radical way in Russia. Together with the victory of the revolution, though, Marx's fundamental error also became evident. He showed precisely how to overthrow the existing order, but he did not say how matters should proceed thereafter. He simply presumed that with the expropriation of the ruling class, with the fall of political power and the socialization of means of production, the new Jerusalem would be realized. Then, indeed, all contradictions would be resolved. Man and the world would simply sort themselves out then everything would be able to proceed by itself along the right path, because everything would belong to everyone, and all would desire the best for one another. Thus, having accomplished the revolution, Lenin must have realized that the writings of the Master gave no indication as to how to proceed. True, Marx had spoken of the interim phase of the dictatorship of the proletariat as a necessity which in time would automatically become redundant. This intermediate phase we know all too well, and we also know how it then developed, not ushering in a perfect world, but leaving behind a trail of appalling destruction. 
Marx not only omitted to work out how this new world would be organised, which should, of course, have been unnecessary. His silence on this matter follows logically from his chosen approach. His error lay deeper. He forgot that man always remains man. He forgot man, and he forgot man's freedom. He forgot that freedom always remains also freedom for evil. He thought that once the economy had been put right, everything would automatically be put right. His real error is materialism. Man, in fact, is not merely the product of economic conditions, and it is not possible to redeem him purely from the outside by creating a favourable economic environment. Again, we find ourselves facing the question: What may we hope? A self-critique of modernity is needed in dialogue with Christianity and its concept of hope. In this dialogue, Christians too, in the context of their knowledge and experience, must learn anew in what their hope truly consists, what they have to offer to the world, and what they cannot offer. Following into this self-critique of the modern age, there also has to be a self-critique of modern Christianity, which must constantly renew its self-understanding, setting out from its roots. On this subject, all we can attempt here. Are a few brief observations. First, we must ask ourselves: What does progress really mean? What does it promise, and what does it not promise? In the 19th century, faith in progress was already subject to critique. In the 20th century, Theodore W. Adorno formulated the problem of faith in progress quite drastically. He said that progress, seen accurately, is progress from the sling to the atom bomb. Now, this is certainly an aspect of progress that must not be concealed. To put it another way, the ambiguity of progress becomes evident. Without doubt, it offers new possibilities for good, but it also opens up appalling possibilities for evil, possibilities that formerly did not exist. We have all witnessed the way in which progress, in the wrong hands, can become, and has indeed become, a terrifying progress in evil. If technical progress is not matched by corresponding progress in man's ethical formation, in man's inner growth, then it is not progress at all, but a threat for man and for the world. As far as the two great themes of reason and freedom are concerned, here we can only touch upon the issues connected with them. Yes, indeed, reason is God's great gift to man, and the victory of reason over unreason is also a goal of the Christian life. But when does reason truly triumph? When it is detached from God? When it has become blind to God? Is the reason behind action and capacity for action, the whole of reason? If progress, in order to be progress, needs moral growth on the part of humanity, then the reason behind action and capacity for action is likewise urgently in need of integration through reason's openness to the saving forces of faith, to the differentiation between good and evil.
Only thus does reason become truly human. It becomes human only if it is capable of directing the will along the right path. And it is capable of this only if it looks beyond itself. Otherwise, man's situation, in view of the imbalance between his material capacity and the lack of judgment in his heart, becomes a threat for him and for creation. Thus, where freedom is concerned, we must remember that human freedom always requires a convergence of various freedoms. Yet this convergence cannot succeed unless it is determined by a common intrinsic criterion of measurement, which is the foundation and goal of our freedom. Let us put it very simply. Man needs God. Otherwise he remains without hope. Given the developments of the modern age, the quotation from St. Paul with which I began, Ephesians 2.12, proves to be thoroughly realistic and plainly true. There is no doubt, therefore, that a kingdom of God, accomplished without God, a kingdom, therefore, of man alone, inevitably ends up as the perverse end of all things, as described by Kant. We have seen it, and we have seen it over and over again. Yet neither is there any doubt that God truly enters into human affairs only when, rather than being present merely in our thinking, he himself comes towards us and speaks to us. Reason therefore needs faith, if it is to be completely itself. Reason and faith need one another in order to fulfil their true nature and their mission. Let us pray. Holy Mary, Mother of God, our Mother, teach us to believe, to hope, to love with you. Show us the way to Jesus' kingdom. Star of the sea, shine upon us and guide us on our way. Prayer of Pope Benedict XVI on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 2005. On this day dedicated to Mary, I have come for the first time as successor of Peter to the feet of the Statue of the Immaculate here in Piazza di Spagna, ideally continuing the pilgrimage made many times by my predecessors. I feel that I am accompanied by the devotion and affection of the Church living in the city of Rome and in the entire world. I bring with me the concerns and hopes of present-day humanity and come to lay them at the feet of the Heavenly Mother of the Redeemer. On this remarkable day, the 40th anniversary of the closing of the Second Vatican Council, my thought goes to the 8th of December 1965, when, exactly at the end of the homily during the Eucharistic celebration in St. Peter's Square, the servant of God, Paul VI, addressed his thought to Mary, the Mother of God and our spiritual Mother, the creature in whom the image of God is reflected 
with absolute clarity, without any disturbance as happens in every other human creature. The Pope then asked, is it not perhaps in directing our gaze on this woman, who is our humble sister, and at the same time our heavenly mother and queen, the spotless and sacred mirror of infinite beauty, that we can begin our post-conciliar work. Does not the beauty of Mary Immaculate become for us an inspiring model, a comforting hope? He then concluded, We think it is so for us and for you, and this is our most exalted and, God willing, our most valuable parting wish. Recalling the many events that have marked the last 40 years, how can we not relive today the various moments that have highlighted the Church's journey in this period? Mary sustained the pastors, and in the first place, the successors of Peter, in their demanding ministry at the service of the Gospel during these 40 years. She guided the Church towards the faithful understanding and application of the conciliar documents. For this reason, serving as spokesman for the entire ecclesial community, I wish to thank the Most Holy Virgin, and I turn to her with the same sentiments that animated the Council Fathers, who dedicated to Mary the last chapter of the dogmatic constitution, Flumen Gentium, underlining the inseparable relationship that unites the Virgin to the Church. Yes, we want to thank you. Virgin Mother of God, and our most beloved Mother, for your intercession for the good of the Church. You, who, in embracing the divine will without reserve, were consecrated with all of your energies to the person and work of your Son. Teach us to keep in our heart, and to meditate in silence, as you did, upon the mysteries of Christ's life. May you who reached Calvary, ever deeply united to your Son, who from the cross gave you as mother to the disciple John, also make us feel you are always close in each moment of our lives, especially in times of darkness and trial. You, who at Pentecost, together with the Apostles in prayer, called upon the gift of the Holy Spirit for the newborn Church, Help us to persevere in the faithful following of Christ. To you, a sign of certain hope and comfort, we trustfully turn our gaze until the day of the Lord shall come. You, Mary, are invoked with the insistent prayer of the faithful throughout the world, so that you, exalted above all the angels and saints, will intercede before your Son for us until all families of peoples, whether they are honoured with the title of Christian or whether they still do not know the Saviour, may be happily gathered together in peace and harmony into one people of God for the glory of the most holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.